Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. I just got into college I was 18 years old and after being cornered by a kind of internal freak out I had found my gurus and I found them sort of accidentally in the library the Carl Jung's the Dostoevsky's the Sartre's the Herman Hesse's and as soon as I realized I had this family I couldn't stop reading I just wanted to be in this world where there were other people like me. And they were essentially punks. People who were pulling away from what was going on at the time and trying to turn back to something vital. And so after I was sort of baptized by reading, I eventually stumbled upon this random essay called What is Art? I'd never spent much time with Leo Tolstoy but clearly there was some sort of spiritual crisis going on in Russia in 1897 because he sounds desperate to rescue any sense of what's left of authenticity. And so he writes this essay to try to create a wall so that art can exist within a sphere that entertainment can't penetrate. And while that sounds totally obtuse, it's the thing that we're all waiting for someone to say throughout every paradigm. It doesn't matter if it's Kurt Cobain. It doesn't matter if it's Bob Dylan. What people who care are waiting for is someone to reclaim the initial power of expression. And what Tolstoy was trying to lay down was we need a place that can't be corrupted. Little me read this shit and was like, yeah, this is self-evident. All he tried to emphasize was that one person alone goes into themselves, goes into a room and creates something that transmutes their suffering. And then other people find this later and experience it and recognize something in themselves. 
it begins as a private expression, and then it finds communion because of its initial private integrity. Now through the years, that always stuck with me, just this little idea in the back of my head. And as I would try to make my music alone in a room by myself, when people eventually overheard it, they might say, that's not music, that's just selfish. (laughs) And I realized how conditioned the world is towards entertainment that they can't even recognize art anymore. So what we're gonna do today is reclaim this spirit of selfishness and redefine it. Drift of Sympathy, season five. Today we're going back to the scaffolding of the 50s culture in America that was to set up the birth of the counterculture. Something that's certainly been sort of overly broadcasted about, but I want to expound a different thesis. The 50s were a kind of landscape where maybe a little raw ambition and just a minimal amount of vision could accomplish a lot because the horizon was completely open. And as usual, I'm totally focused on these underdogs that come from out of nowhere and alter the way everyone lives their lives. So positioned perfectly is this little kid in Fargo, North Dakota. Clearly not geographically positioned well, but he would turn into the teen heartthrob Bobby V. Come back when you grow up, girl. You're still living in a paper doll world. Living ain't easy, loving's twice as tough. So come back, baby, when you grow up. I want you. But your wide-eyed innocence has really messed up my mind, yeah. I'd rather you get your very first heartbreak somewhere else along the line. Come back when you grow up, girl. You're still living in a paper doll. I don't know if I get perverse joy from 
playing this shit, knowing somebody's going to be like, wow, that is terrible, but I'm not giving it to you for your party playlist. This is history. It's just, it happened. In 1959, Bobby V is heading up a band called The Shadows that's just meandering around the Fargo area. And nearby, in Hibbing, there's a young man named Robert Zimmerman, who is eventually going to go by the name Bob Dylan. Dylan spots him in a record store. Having heard that they needed a pianist, he lies several times, but charms the fuck out of him. Brings, like, an infectious energy, saying he'd just gotten off the road with Conway Twitty. Total lie. And his name was actually Elston Gunn with three N's. Historically, this is a pretty amazing meeting in this little record store because here are these two kids that identify as being totally similar and they're going to go on two totally different journeys that end up fucking with the national consciousness. But while they're both desperately trapped out in middle America... Bobby V is the only one that can really escape because the format of popular music is only willing to accept his talent. Bob Dylan hasn't refined something that could be considered marketable yet. And as destiny would have it, Dylan would get fired two weeks later when the band finds out that he can only play in the key of C. Now, before the underground, at this time... Bobby V was totally aware that the mold that he had to sink into was some kind of teen heartthrob singer. That was all that was available. There wasn't any sense of artistic freedom that was even known of as a possibility yet. And strangely enough, the song that gets Bobby V out of Fargo is probably the worst song he ever did in his career, but it's very emblematic of the late 50s, when labels saw this teen market as a kind of fleeting flash in the pan that they had to milk as fast as possible, even the Beatles believed that a band could only last about three years at the most. This is a climate ruled by the generation gap, and the older executives are just pushing cartoon bullshit on this new kid market. There's absolutely no sense that there will be a coming intellectual influx into rock and roll or anything. They're just pushing relatively handsome boys in front of the mic and giving them garbage to sing. So the next boy up just happened to be Bobby V and he gets this thing called Rubber Ball. I'm like a rubber ball, baby, that's all that I am to you. Bouncy, 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 bouncy. Just a rubber ball, cause you think you can be true to two. Bouncy, 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 bouncy. You bounce my heart around. You don't even put her down. Hey, like a rubber ball, like I'm bouncing back to you. Rubber ball, like I'm bouncing back to you. If you If you consider yourself well above enjoying that song, consider 
that it went to number one in Australia, number four in the UK, and number six in the US, making this completely obscure little Fargo kid an international superstar and causing Bob Dylan to look sideways and say, what the fuck just happened, dude? How did you do that? So the strangest thing is that kind of awful song was written by one of the great singers of the time, Gene Pitney, in the Brill Building, and somehow migrated over probably looking for some just publishing money just to get some idiot to sing it. But Gene Pitney is one of the most crucial point men of that time. He's the first person in this teen heartthrob movement that understands the beauty of the Beatles and the Stones and covers them before anyone right when they appear. I love him, and he's really worth a lot of study in the sense that he brought this nexus point to fruition, but he has a very strange high voice. It's not quite what you would think is commercial and yet somehow he glued the 50s to the 60s in ways and scored some improbable hits with bizarre Scott Walker-esque kind of intellectual takes on pop music. My very most favorite is called Something's Got a Hold of My Heart. Something 
was always drawn to him and that song, and I never really knew why. And I was doing some research on him, and somebody said that he actually went to electronic school, learned how to record, recorded himself, played every instrument, and produced himself. And a tiny little tear welled up in my eyes. I was reading it because I realized that as a multi-tracker, somebody that plays all the instruments, that I had this deeper relationship to him that I didn't know about. But Gene Pitney wasn't symptomatic of that time at all. He really defied all the odds. Being a songwriter in the Braille Building when you're 20 years old is just not indicative of what anyone else was doing. So he's written songs for Ray Peterson, Bobby V, Roy Orbison, and by the time he's 22 years old, he writes, he's a rebel for the Crystals, which for that time is a towering melodic masterpiece. The entire climate at this point is defined by your attempt to assimilate into the man's plan. You are asking to be his bitch. That is the teen heartthrob paradigm. But that paradigm opens up once you bring in Scott Walker and Gene Pitney, who are new intellectual characters reinterpreting the form and giving themselves permission to be a sort of Lord Byron or Sartre of pop music. In my room, way at the end of the hall I sit and stare at the wall Thinking how lonesome I've grown All alone in my room In my room, where every night is the same I play a dangerous game I keep pretending she's late And I sit and I wait Over there is a picture we took when I met her, my Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, the people that ran the labels at the time could feel that there was going to be some sort of change. And as usual, it's very hard to predict what direction it's going to come from. Now, not knowing that drugs were going to hit youth culture extremely hard and unable to predict that the paradigm shift was going to come from the internal landscape and that music was going to deepen, there was no way they could put their money on the right horse. I think Scott Walker knew that it was a bit of a lost cause to inject true intellectualism into kind of glossy pop forms. And in a weird way, he sacrificed himself almost literally. He tried to kill himself when he was at the top of his career because his internal world just didn't sit congruent with what he was accomplishing as he knew that the world was not ready for a true deeper music. So someone was going to have to start kicking down this wall. Now we know that the Beatles are eventually going to rise up in spiritual power, but at this time, they're essentially one of the first punk bands that ever existed in Hamburg. They take speed all day, they drink all day, they play 12-hour sets, they meet forward-thinking, beautiful hipster girls that educate them on art and fashion and sex, and they get arrested for lighting clubs on fire. They're basically the exact opposite of what people think of them. So even though they're a total mess, they are inadvertently undermining the band structure of the time, which is a backup band in a line with the same color suits and one leader in the gold lame like Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And when the Beatles come along and their first manager brings them to the label and says, we've got an interesting group. The first executive actually says, what is a group? There's not just like a singer and a band. This was the beginning of a bizarre punk radical shift. This was for individuals that had no leader, that were all interested in writing their own songs, but had never been allowed to. Someone had to come along and tell them that that's what the future was going to be about. Now, to be fair, between Chuck Berry, Gene Vincent, and Buddy Holly, you have three people there that often wrote their own songs that set up a template for the Beatles to run with. But Del Shannon has a different character. Essentially, those first three people are reaching out for a universality. 
they are reaching out to be part of the culture, to unite people. And the early seeds of the counterculture are just being planted. So these guys are sketching out what it means to be young and rebellious. I mean, someone like Gene Vincent or Miles Davis were wildly important in developing the atmosphere of young thinking people and what it meant to be cool. But Del Shannon is actually fucked up inside. This is somebody who is going to kill themselves. So as kids are flipping through the AM dial in their car up on Makeout Lane or whatever, there is something different inside the unconscious frequency of this music pumping through their speakers. Instead of reaching out to please, Del Shannon starts to turn inward. And that subtle indication of pulling inside instead of pushing out towards the crowd is what made someone like John Lennon think, I can reveal myself. Instead of going to the party tonight, I'm going to go home and write, I'm a loser. A whole new form of transparency comes from this. And people's brain chemistry will now start to acknowledge that music might be more than just entertainment. So an entirely new field of trust is being established between a singer and a listener here. And this is the building of what the underground is defined by, starting in these very small seeds of actual pain leaking through commercial music. For the very first time, young people's negative feelings would be redeemed or validated. And instead of gazing up at this fantasy heartthrob who's defined by their looks and success, the valuation would pivot over to the performer's importance, their depth and substance, and what they actually had to say. It's the setting up of the counterculture's tenants, and it all begins in its infancy with this kind of accidental transparency leaking through. For the first time, the James Deans or the person on the other side of the speakers was not a distant celebrity. They felt that the person was actually fucking hurt.
I know it just sounds like a pop song, but I can't explain it. It's like the, one of the saddest things I've ever heard. It sounds like something dying. There's so much music that is supposed to represent pain that's made in expensive studios and people expound thousands of pages on it or, you know, mutilate their body to it or whatever. But, like, that felt real to me on some unconscious level that it, I can't recover very well. Can you imagine if they gave you the fucking airwaves and you could pump whatever you wanted into the cars of all those kids' speakers... And in the 1950s, when nobody even knew what the fuck therapy was, and coming home to the types of toxic, scary family situations that were going on back then and were not talked about on any level, if, if some dude was beating his wife out into the street, people closed their fucking doors. Like, just facing the truth on any level was highly discouraged. It was about shutting your fucking mouth, right? So, when a minor chord rings out and the singer betrays the sense of feeling suicidal, genuinely, what an intense thing to bring to those kids who have never seen themselves out in the world. So, these other guys, you know... Wonderful entertainers. Buddy Holly was probably the greatest songwriter in the world in 1957. The god of pop music. But fuck, man, this is what it sounds like. Every day it's getting closer Going faster than a roller coaster Love like yours will surely come my way Getting faster, everyone said, Go ahead and ask her. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, 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 every day seems a little longer. Every way, love's a little stronger. Come what may, do you ever long for true love from me? Every day, it's getting closer. So no offense to Buddy Holly, he just seems like slightly more of a jingle writer in his way, but jingle writing itself was a massive influence on the Beatles and how they began and what they saw they thought they were going to do. But more centrally with Buddy Holly, his ability to hit number ones over and over and be in total control of the songwriting productions himself that's got to be the central blueprint that the Beatles say, that's us, that's what we do. It made it all completely real, what they were doing in their bedroom. But as we've grown as listeners and we go revisit this shit, it's just not holding up the same way we remember it. Just as Del Shannon's music was way more emotionally developed in a certain way that I think set up Lennon's ability to be selfish, to go to a place that was genuinely painful. 
It's easy to forget that our parents grew up in a kind of post-war reality where you escaped your family on the weekends and sat in a movie theater for like a triple fucking feature to get the fuck out of reality. They had not developed escapism in any fraction of the sense like we have now. The major stranglehold of Hollywood imagery, the thing that begins to lead youth culture, is just at this time getting its hands on people's brains and the way they see themselves. They are imitating people in film to gain some form of glamour in their middle American lives. So it wasn't an intended piece of the machine that some kind of lackey like Del Shannon would flip the script inadvertently. The mass push is towards showbiz. It's towards glamour. It is not about turning inside. They hadn't planned on him bringing anything real. I mean, Elvis was a threat, but he did what they said. Elvis and Del Shannon are tragic figures, but Elvis escapes to luau pictures and hides it all away until it's way too late. Del Shannon operates more as the hunchback of Notre Dame of teen heartthrobs. Here's just a cursory reading of the Del Shannon song titles to give you a sense of the vibe. I wake up crying. Lies. He doesn't care. You never talked about me. He cheated. Cry myself to sleep. As I said in the American Trailblazers episode, Del Shannon had an actual hunchback and was totally convinced women didn't really like him. I think he was stricken with an intense case of imposter syndrome which is really surreal when you're hitting the American bandstand stages and pictures of your face are stretched up 25 feet above you as the lights hit your face. To quote the Gene Pitney song backstage, a thousand hands applaud tonight. I sing my songs, my star shines bright. I'll stop and smile and take my bow and leave the stage and then somehow Backstage, I'm lonely. Backstage, I cry. And each night, I seem to die. It must sound insane to hate being on this huge stage. But think about what happens after. The aftermath of the teen heartthrob movement is an ugly fucking zone, man. Everybody from Ricky Nelson to Bobby V to Del Shannon just floated away completely. If you got two songs on an oldies tour, you were fucking lucky for the rest of your life. You were a walking mummy. As soon as you've made your contribution, you're already on the way out the back door. If you're halfway intelligent, you've read the contracts you've signed, you get like a 2% profit as the artist, maybe. So if you're Del Shannon and you are paranoid about you not being the real thing, you see the blood in the water and you see the executives patting the back of the next boy that is replacing you already as the 13-year-old girls in the crowd scream and the cane pulls you off stage and you're back in the alley. And once the Beatles hit, ain't nobody buying that shit no more.
Now we're pouring out a drink for the lost teen heart throbs as the wave washes over them. After the marketplace changes and the teen heart throbs have all been sacrificed, they wake up in a drug induced daze about a decade later. They weren't allowed to be themselves, and yet the way things progress. Somebody slowly pushes against the boundaries and then breaks open a new market. And the new kids grow up on listening to that and then wake up into a world where anything is permissible. So the old guard just gets fucking run over by the new bus. So Bobby V happens to be on tour and he's in Greenwich Village. And he sees a record in the window of a record store. He says, that looks a lot like the guy, Elston Gunn, who played piano for me. Can you imagine when he walks in the record store and gets to hear that level of selfishness when he just busted his ass to sing fucking Rubber Ball? He wasn't allowed to be himself. And now this kid who couldn't even play in anything other than the Kia C, has cut corners and is leading the entire culture. And though the rules of the road have been lodged, it's only people's games you got to dodge. And it's all right, Ma, I can make it. Advertising signs that con you into thinking you're the one That can do what's never been done That can win what's never been won Meantime, life outside goes on all around you You lose yourself, you reappear You suddenly find you got nothing to fear Alone you stand with nobody near When a trembling distant voice unclear Startles your sleeping ears to hear That somebody thinks they really found you A 
Every question in your nerves is lit, yet you know there is no answer fit to satisfy and sure you not to quit to keep it in your mind and not forget that it is not he or she or them or it that you belong to. But though the masters make the rules for the wise men and the fools, I got nothing more to live up to. For them that must obey authority that they do not respect in any degree, who despise their jobs, their destiny, speak jealously of them that are free, do what they do just to be nothing more than something they invest in. Well, I saw him perform all the time. I hung out with him. I was the guy. I was his manager. This is a borderline street criminal named Roy Silver. Well, maybe technically he was Bob Dylan's first manager, but really... He's just one of many people Bob Dylan uses to position himself time after time just to get to a better horizon. And all this guy really did was loan him 50 bucks to record Blowing in the Wind. There was so much talent around in an undiscovered area. Folk music, my God, who knew from folk music? I mean, the only person that was alive that any of us knew was Pete Seeger. No one understood what was happening. I mean, no one woke up and said, oh my God, it's folk music. And we were just people working and trying to make a buck and hoping that this would all turn into something fabulous. You could smell it, that there was something going on that would do away with the old stuff. No one ever thought that this was one day going to be Bob Dylan. As much as a spineless leech this guy is, he's bringing us this stunning piece of information. And we forget about the arbitrariness of this crease because the mythology is so overpresented and ubiquitous. This was not supposed to happen. Folk music becoming popular doesn't even compute at all. I mean, it might as well be a subcategory of some sort of exotica label, but something was about to go wildly sideways, just like a hard 90 degree turn. And this guy certainly didn't know what the fuck it was. I remember that he was strange. No one leaped up from their seat at the end of the show and said, my God, the Messiah has come. No one. I mean, it was hard. No one ever accused Bob of being a great performer. I mean, at any time. It's true that Dylan was just a little kid in a coffee shop, essentially, who really couldn't command a big audience. So why did the whole world stop and let him walk through the Golden Gates and just sort of grab the throne as their premier poet? I think the best answer lies in people like Roy Silver. The generation gap was so big 
and the executives were throwing money at anything somewhat new as the teen idol sound is dying off. It's an arbitrary intersection with someone who was looking for opportunity and was a bit of a hustler himself with another gang of hustlers who just want to make money and are seeing what will take. What's interesting about this is just what Dylan does with all of his opportunities. You got a lot I knew To say you are my friend When I was down You just stood there grinning You got a lot I knew To say you got a helping hand I hope you can hear the difference between that and Rubber Ball because essentially that's the first time the radio would be playing underground music. I mean, that is selfish music. He took the power away from those people and he did whatever he wanted. You can't underestimate it. It's just not possible. He is straight up spitting lyrics that Johnny Rotten would wish he could write. You say you've lost your faith, but that's not where it's at. You have no faith to lose, and you know it. That's fucked. you imagine the opportunity to broadcast the concept that the world runs on total fucking lies? That's what that guy did. He went up on the biggest fucking stage and broadcast that shit. So finally, the masses are presented with the poet that they actually deserve. Or maybe they don't deserve him yet, because they don't seem to have an idea of what to do with just like this sudden Shakespeare being laid right in front of them after being conditioned by processed garbage for so long. Finally, they have somebody that represents something closer to street life instead of just basic plastic bullshit entertainment that really does nothing for them but provides some sort of fantasy escape. 
once they acclimate to the raw thing, they can't really go back. I mean, what would that even mean? Music on the radio before Dylan sounded like this. The reward of being post-Dylan is you get shit like this instead. John Lennon's great tribute to withdrawing from heroin. And if you really want to get into the kind of sway that Bob Dylan was able to wield during that time in the D.A. Pennybacker documentary, Eat the Document, there's this really uncomfortable scene where Bob Dylan and John Lennon are sort of trapped in a car, both on heroin in the back seat. And you can emotionally feel the way that John Lennon has to bow down to him and the way that Dylan has to wield his power over Lennon, just making sure he's kept in his place as Lennon is kind of like a scared little boy, just like really almost out of his depth. It's pretty intense to watch those two people essentially just as little boys playing on the playground and doing this territorial bullshit. As Carl Jung once said, with great intelligence can come great inflation, and with great inflation can induce a great stupidity. So 
there's a danger here as you crack open this incredible power and freedom. All of a sudden, you can kind of get away with anything. In a sense, Bob Dylan was karmically stranded as the little boy genius that couldn't quite make himself emotionally vulnerable and truly deepen the craft, which really opened the gates for Neil Young to come along and pound out the form into a more open and touching sound that ostensibly ended up becoming more marketable as it actually invited the listener in. You brought it all along, oh, but it feels so wrong. No, 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 I don't believe this song. Who could possibly want to turn back? Now you can say whatever you want. Suddenly, you've got the template for Neil Young. You've got the template for Lou Reed. It's all sitting right there just waiting to be taken now. Dylan kind of rattled the cage until the thing fell apart. But when it comes to deepening music itself, he couldn't do that all by himself. You could argue that he was a bit more of a hustler rather than a true, pure loner, and it would take those types to pull songwriting into a much more emotional realm where difficult things could truly be dealt with head on. And as usual, movements like this really become a kind of Trojan horse of total bullshit, a new way of selling the same old thing, and you had people who were fully willing to be those same teen stars, to offer up really nothing of true value, but to get on stage, take the money, buy the jet, and do all that shit, all in the name of some sort of false hippie dream. So someone would have to come along and really separate the wheat from the chaff and say, no, no, this is actually our collective chance to throw down the hammer and take back the power once and for all. What's slowly getting set up here is the birth of punk, but punk was kind of a final push towards total honesty. And while Dylan and Neil Young are irreplaceable contributors to the punk attitude, they both carry inside them tons of traditionalism that smash up against their radicalism leaving a pretty confused imprint for future generations who just read blow-up quotes in Rolling Stone that say Neil Young is the father of grunge or some sort of quick soundbite that really says nothing at all. The truth is that the world that both of them came from was a hustler's realm, where being an egomaniac wasn't really a bad thing yet. Neil Young wandered into the Wild West after Dylan had made his mark there was an open horizon of things that could be done, and his own band wouldn't even let him sing because he wasn't a marketable commodity yet. He was somebody who was going to have to wait to make his imprint, and we have helped rescript that imprint, just as the Velvet Underground have, as Bowie said, become more influential than the Beatles. A band that played for 40 people is now more influential than the Beatles. That's the power of rescripting, and Neil Young has been rescripted into the ultimate pioneer of selfish music. But before that, 
He was just another hustler in the post-Dylan chaos trying to score a quick bit of fame in a cheesy fucking LA that would accept just about anything. first A-side with Buffalo Springfield, his opening bid, and it's really just a tribute to Dylan asking false questions like, who's that stomping all over my face, and who's putting sponge in the bells I once rung? I'm nearly positive that nobody's ever wept to that. It's almost a useless look at him, except for the fact that you see he's willing to go fully commercial when it suits his interests. He's a guy who tried to join the monkeys, but refused to go on Johnny Carson with Buffalo Springfield, then joins Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the most opportunistic situation he could have been presented with, and then breaks them up over and over on a whim, leaving notes like, see you tomorrow, and disappearing for four years. Is he just a very rich troll, or is he the working-class hero? The question is more, could he capitalize on the freedom Dylan suggested and maintain a career while bringing music into the most interpersonal realm it had ever seen? This all depends on if you want to champion him. Maybe Crosby, Stilson, Nash being this bloated carcass that he jumps on top of is the necessary evil that brings him into the consciousness of millions of people while he carries the seed of punk music down on the Trojan horse of these coked up idiots. Lover, there will be another one who hover over you beneath the sun. Tomorrow, see the things that never come. Today, when you see me fly away without you, shadow on the things you know, feathers fall around you and show you the way to go. It's over It's over 
nestle in your wings, my little one. Is special morning brings another sun. Tomorrow, see the things that never come today. When you see me fly away without you, shadow on the things you know, feathers fall around you and show you the way to go. It's Selfishness is Prometheus's fire. It is the wrench that steals back the power from the oppressors. And even if Bobby V never thought freedom would be available to him, he still dreamed of it. And when he looks back at his fucking bunk deal and he sees what Bob Dylan had done, the other kid from the Midwest that he had hired and fired in 1959 when they were on the same level, just two kids in a fucking record store, when he sees the paradigm shift that Dylan was able to kick into gear and he sees how fast Dylan took that curve, he must have felt an intense happiness for his friend and a wild sadness for what he wasn't allowed to do. So as a kind of last bid in 1972, Bobby V issues a final solo record under his real name, Robert Thomas Valine, and it's called Nothing Like a Sunny Day, and he looks miserable. <laughs> he's, uh, he's kind of trying to do his own version of what he would have done if he had had the freedom of Dylan, but it's kind of too late. I just bought this record and it was 99 cents and it has not been issued since 1972. So there's something pretty deeply sad about it. He paints the paintings himself and paints himself kind of just in a corner looking like a little boy, just sort of sad and alone. What's wrong? The world just ain't flowing the way that it should. We're just drifting along. Will you write a song? And I'll paint a picture of where we've been and where we belong. It's all the same. Working it out, forgetting the games we're playing Growing together as one and the same 
Mr. Gun I got your message Loud and clear It's right here in my brain Thinking in terms of you and me and one another The road to take has never been so plain It's all the same Facing the facts and quitting the games we're playing Growing together is one and the same About a sunny day, paint a picture of freedom. Someday it'll be that way. Sing a song about love. Sing a song about a sunny day. Paint a picture of freedom. Someday it'll be that way. Sing a song about love. Sing a song about a sunny day Paint a picture of freedom Someday it'll be that way Sing a song about love Sing a song about a sunny day Paint a picture of freedom Someday it'll be that way Sing a song about love Sing a song about a sunny day Paint a picture of freedom Freedom Someday it'll be that Someday way it'll be Sing that a way. song about Sing Now, Bob Dylan called Bobby V the most meaningful person that he had ever been on stage with because in the beginning they really stood on the same plateau and wanted the same thing. It was an arbitrary shakeout that put Bob Dylan on his path. He just made really fucking amazing decisions, but it, those decisions benefited everyone else. So we started this narrative in the 50s when personal freedom wasn't even an artistic option. And then because of this arbitrary entrance from the side door of folk music, this one character sort of smashes the ceiling and prepares the evolutionary pool of artists around them to equip their imagination and exhibit ultimate personal freedom to a generation experiencing a kind of spiritual uprising, but needing direction. Our parents bought these records the day they came out. Their friends came over, they sat around the record player, and they looked for purpose and fucking life. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. So I'm gonna continue this thread on the next episode and try to bring it into modern times. I like the idea of selfish music because it conjoins folk, music concrete, Miles Davis, 
punk music, as long as you are stealing back the power and trying to satisfy the individual's own true needs, in a sense, you're doing the work of like Jesus Christ or Johnny Rotten. You're smashing the structure that is oppressing people and you're bringing the power back to the individual. Just for you. Fix me, fix my head, fix me, please. I don't wanna be dead. Someday I feel all 